The green, green wall of home. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> I was about to ask you if you'd ever heard of Semiamu. No. Semiamu is a place that is in Surrey, British Columbia, mm-hmm. that is now home to the largest biologically diverse living wall in North America. And it's huge, right? It's huge. Don't you dare. Okay, hang on. Oh, it's 3,000? Square feet. <laughs> I have that. And it, and it consists of over 10,000 individual plants. It's this company called Green Over Gray. And what they've done is they've built this wall. They've attached it to um, an existing wall. Mm-hmm. But it's this completely biologically diverse wall. It lives. It breathes. It's unbelievable. No, And it's, they're like plants that would normally be climb or something, right? So they don't have trouble being on a vertical plain, I think. Yeah. It, right? Yeah. But what I was just so impressed with the fact that there was, you know, it's another example of responsive architecture, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. the thought that we can make, at least well, in certain environments, you can make walls like of a house. I, my head is so attached to the idea of a house being a building and it not being, you know, a living wall or a living thing. Yeah. I mean, we've seen, I've seen examples of living walls, but this one sounded really like very ambitious in terms of how large it was and what a potential difference it could make to just to the, like the heating costs and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. And the air, the quality of the air, because you yeah. know, like green, and that's it's green, huge, actually, cleans up the air. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also they were saying like in terms of for people, it um, psychologically, it's so much better for you. Makes you feel really good when you're in the space. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was talking to the guy, one of the owners, and he said that as far as the acoustic uh, ambience, mm-hmm. that's even the right way to say it, it just makes everything sounds better in that space because of the way the sound isn't bouncing around. It's actually absorbed right, right, right. by the living organisms. The one that I've seen is fairly small. I think it's, where is it? I think it's in the Center for Social Innovation on Spadina. Yeah. And I, I believe that's right. And it is really like an amazing feeling, of, especially in winter in Canada, to be around plant life is just incredible. Like I, when I lived in Winnipeg, I used to go to the, um, to the Palm House all the time yeah. in the winter. Partly because it was a place where there was actual humidity, but it was just like so, it just made you feel alive again to be around plants and nature in the middle of a Canadian winter. Like, I think especially for Canada, it's the kind of thing that could be really important. But, you know, well, you know Hylozoic Ground, right? That Philip Beasley thing? Mm-hmm. It's like, like he's creating buildings that can respond to your moods and things like this, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Through using and technology how you move and stuff like that. Yeah, but with this, is like you have a whole house that actually lived. Yeah, you mean like all of the walls? All the walls, and why not? Maybe you could grow crops on it. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you could eat your walls. (laughs) Stop snacking on the wall. (laughs) (laughs) You're on a diet. You leave that wall alone. We'll put up a link to it. It's worth taking a taking a boo out of. Yeah, absolutely. Your story. Yeah, I came across this. uh, Do you know Alain de Botton? He's, yeah, through you, I think. Okay, he's an English writer who's kind of, I guess I would describe him as kind of a populist philosopher. He writes books about like architecture or general meaning of life types of questions. And I read a great tweet of his the other day, which was saying something like, architecture is one profession like writing where 
most of the time things are not going very well or something. I don't do it justice, but it was really, yeah, really that's sort of true. struck me as a person who's trying to write now. And it's, you know, as you know, trying to write too, it can be a bit of a struggle. A bit. Um, but a bit, yeah. He did this project recently where he was invited to be writer in residence at Heathrow Airport. Did they do that all the time, or was this like... I think it was a when one-off. Was with him? And he wrote a book called A Week at the Airport, or A Month at the Airport, or something like that, about um, being at Heathrow and the things that he observed by people being in those transitory spaces. And he actually said in an interview that that was the best place that he'd ever worked as a writer, that he had this desk in the departures area. The picture's hysterical. Yeah, and he just he just wrote there. And he also said that, like... We often have these ideal spaces for writing, you know, like a study with a row of books and everything's quiet and everything. But in fact, those places are often not the best places to write or indeed to do any kind of work. And I've read this from other people. You know, Malcolm Gladwell talked about how he, when he's writing, he sort of ranges. Like he goes from a bunch of different cafes to different cafes. And that's where he writes because he likes to feel like he's connected to the world going on around him. So he just takes his laptop and away he goes? I guess, yeah. Yeah. Well, where's your favorite place to write? Um, or best place? Maybe not favorite, but yeah, most productive. I, I think it depends for different things. You know, for a long time, like when I, when I was working on the book, I would write on my laptop by the front window. Uh, first of all, because I felt like I wanted to be somewhere away from my regular computer where, you know, I'm used to using it for a lot of things. Like I watch videos Movies. on it and yeah. edit the sniffer on it and whatever like and I also wanted to have that sense of being connected to the street like that there was life going on around me that I could see whereas in upstairs it's just I just felt like very disconnected but now I've for some reason I've gone back to the desktop is that because you're at like second draft are you uh yeah I guess so maybe and I think it's also that the leaves are off the trees now so I just feel kind of exposed sitting in the front window <laughs> there she is again just sitting there staring <laughs> that's right exactly well, her book must not be going very well she's not writing much <laughs> well yeah because he said that sometimes when we set up these ideal um, workspaces that it puts too much pressure on us to think that we're going to have to really do something that's fantastic oh yeah you know yeah, you put all yeah. this money into this really snazzy study and yeah, like, yeah who do you think you are in this yeah. snazzy study he had a great line about that he said original thoughts are like shy animals we sometimes have to look the other way before they run out of their burrows which I yeah was really I like great. that a lot yeah. but I do think the fact that he was writing a book about that experience would make it a lot easier than if he was oh, yeah. writing a book about something you know, totally different yeah because yeah. it would be mm-hmm. or people kept coming up because you would think people would think he was an information kiosk I yes would. yeah excuse me could you tell me where the, the plane for Toronto is <laughs> <laughs> but yes so let us know what you think about living walls. And where you do your best work, whether it's yeah. writing or something else. Is there a space where you feel most uh, creative? Buses and trains are good. Train is a good place to, to work. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good place to yeah. work. Yeah. I wonder if that'll continue to be the case now that there's Wi-Fi on trains. Stupid technology. <laughs> <laughs> Come to the blog for links to these stories and more. The Sniffer. Not that. Bye. Bye.